work, I have conducted a, um, an inordinate amount of funerals. And I want to tell you why. Um, because the county that we lived in before, prior to moving here, the, the demographic skewed fairly old, not just like senior citizens. I think there should be another category past senior citizen that, so senior citizens don't feel like we're just lumping them all together. Uh, but they were, it was very old. Like there, I felt like there were no more you know, nursing homes and that sort of thing than anything else. And then uh, the other reason I did a lot of uh, funerals is because I had done one at this funeral home, and I don't know, the funeral director just decided I did a nice job. And so every time somebody came and said, well, we don't have a preacher, we don't have a church, we don't have a minister, he would call me up to, to do this funeral. So the, the net result was, is I did a lot of funerals of people I did not know. Now, that gets a little dicey. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, because sometimes in funerals, you have this family, and they're just sitting there, and they just want you to say something good. They want you to look at them in the eye, and they want you from the stage, from the pulpit, from the podium to say, you know, Uncle Bob, he is up with the angels. He is looking down on us, and he's smiling. He's happy. That's, they want you to say something like that. But you don't know Uncle Bob. Like, you don't know who this guy is or what he did with his life. You have no idea. And, and it feels like it would be wrong to do that. But it also feels like it would be wrong to say, Uncle Bob is down below, and he is looking up. And he's warning all of you to get your lives right. You don't want to do that either. It's a, so it's a really fine line. You want to like provide comfort, but you don't really know much about this person. You don't know much about their life. And you try to get you know, to know the family a little bit and try to hear a few anecdotes about who they were. And so mostly when I did funerals like this, I just sort of avoided the topic altogether. I didn't try to you know, tell people where we thought this guy might be for eternity. But it is a, it's, a, it's a strange situation to find yourself in where you're trying to think about, like, what is a, a, a person's kind of e eternal, like, destination, so to speak. You know, when you're doing that on behalf of somebody else, and I know, like, of course, conventional wisdom or biblical wisdom would say, you don't have to, you don't do that. We don't need to do that on behalf of other people, right? You don't need to worry about that too much. But when you're preaching a funeral, it kind of, you know, the topic comes up. So you have to walk this really sort of narrow, fine line. The text today that we're reading, we're in this series uh, through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and the text that we're reading today talks about, it has something to say about this, this idea, this topic. Now, if you remember, the church to whom Paul is writing was a church that had three weeks of preparation, and then they were off, and they were off to the races because Paul had gotten kicked him out. He had gotten himself kicked out of Thessalonica, and so this church just had, they had just the bare minimum of structure and, you know, format to figure out how to, you know, work through life, and, uh, and, and so they had, they had some questions. They had some questions about, like, so how does this all work? What's going on? And, and in, in first. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul seem, we seem to be getting like one side of the conversation. So Paul seems to be answering a question that they had. We don't have the question. It's like if you're eavesdropping at a coffee shop on somebody having a conversation, you don't know what the other person is saying, but you can kind of infer based on what their answer is. That's what we're doing. We're inferring what the question is based on the answer that Paul is, uh, is getting. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed. There's something you don't know about those who sleep in death. We don't want you to be uninformed. I am not sure that we are much more informed now about what happens to those who sleep in death. But there was something that they misunderstood. Now, 
Because most of us, most of us here in the room grew up at least with some sort of uh, Western culture structure. We have what's called a mythology around death. And mythology is not a dangerous, scary word. It doesn't mean fairy tale. It just means that our culture has this construct, this framework with which we engage with the idea of death. And so I actually overheard somebody talking. Uh, they, they were talking to this, I don't know, probably a three-year-old. And uh, they were walking around with them. And the three-year-old was like, do you have a grandma? And the person said, well, my grandma has, has died. Oh, what does that mean? And this person was trying to explain what death meant to a, a, a three-year-old. And, and they said, well, you know, grandma's in a, in a, what would they say? And what everybody would say, most people would say, grandma's in a better place, a better place. You kind of leave it undefined, but, but we have some idea of kind of what that means, what that loose structure is, and it's influenced by, by Christianity. Even if a lot of people today don't buy into the whole idea, when they have to explain death to the people around them, they're influenced by these kind of Christian notions, even if they're not quite accurate, Christian notions of death. So the idea is, is that there's something that comes next. There's something you know, you might, especially living in a city like we do or in, in a metropolitan area like we do, you may overhear people like, well, we just returned to the cosmos or we, you know, reached nirvana or whatever. But typically speaking, throughout, you know, American history, they would, there was something that comes next. And the idea is, and again, this isn't like what the Bible teaches, but this is our mythology around death. There, if you're a nice person, then whatever's next is kind of, it should be good. And if you're a bad person, well, maybe it's not so good. It, there's probably something with clouds and wings. Um, our pets will be there. There was a whole movie about it, All Dogs Go to Heaven, so we know that that's true. Um, you may have not noticed this, but did you know all like graves face east? Did you, did you know that? And that is based on this idea that, that Christ will return and everybody will just be like sitting up ready for him to go when they're resurrected. Like that, that most graves, I should say, face east in our, in our country. So if you Drive through a graveyard today. Did you know the word cemetery actually comes from the Greek word to sleep? It's the sleeping place. It was influenced by Christian culture. They said they're, they're sleeping and then one day they will, they will rise again. Um, just under uh, half of Americans believe in something to do with ghosts too. So we have this weird sort of loose sort of mythology around death. But one of the unwritten rules about this whole idea is that you don't think about it too much because that's morbid and you don't talk about it too much because it's just not, it's uncouth. It's something you don't do in public. Nobody ever calls you up and says, hey, you want to come over this weekend? We're going to grill up some brats. We're going to grill up some burgers. We'll probably have a conversation about mortality. You know, does that sound good to you? Nobody, nobody would do that. That's just not the type of conversation that you would bring up, especially in, in people, with people you don't know that very well. Very well. So I, I, would, I would say that just the whole nature of what we're talking about is that there aren't very many things that we want to think about less, but that honestly influence our behavior more than death. There aren't very many things that we want to think about less, but influence our behavior more than death. Got to eat that kale and avoid those nursing homes. That's kind of the way those things work. We don't think about it, but it's sort of influencing the behavior that we exhibit. And Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed. Why? Because this is important. What we believe about what is next, and this may not seem self-evident to you, but what we believe about what is next impacts the way that we behave now. What you believe about what is next after death impacts the way that you behave now. 
So Paul is going to give us some framework to think about this. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, second part of verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So we can, we can kind of judge from the situation that they're asking these questions about what happens when people die. Um, you've heard the, the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. You've heard that, right? And it's always existed. We just didn't have a handy acronym to describe it, but I've always had it. My mom tells me I didn't want to go to sleep when I was a kid because I was afraid something cool was going to happen and I was going to miss out on it. So you can imagine how annoying I was at bedtime when I was a kid. FOMO. And, and I think social media kind of exaggerates the whole problem because now you can see all the fun things that people are doing that you didn't get invited to do with them, right? That's kind of what social media is. Oh, look, they're having a good time. Too bad I didn't get invited and I'm sitting here at home bored watching Netflix. So I think there's this sense in a lot of us, like, we just don't want to miss out on something. And I know it's all different for different people, but just kind of in general, we don't want to feel like we're, 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 we're missing out on something that we should be able to participate in. And I think if we, can, if we can read into this letter just a little bit, when he talks about this idea, you can, you can kind of surmise that the question people were asking is Paul had come to Thessalonica and he had talked to all these folks about, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming back and it's going to be great. You should live your life this way. You should get rid of those idols. You should follow Christ. It's going to be awesome. Jesus is coming back. Live your lives in preparation for that idea, right? And people were like, that sounds great. I like that a lot. That's awesome. Let's do it. I'm on board. And they, in their minds, were thinking, this is probably going to happen in two or three weeks, maybe a month, maybe six months at most. Remember last week we talked about how some people had literally quit their jobs because they're like, why work if Jesus is coming back? There's no reason to keep this job. Jesus is coming back. I don't have to save up any money. I can, you know, uh, live off of credit cards because Jesus is coming back. And then Paul had to go back and say, well, hang on. I'm glad you're, you're living it out, but maybe not right away. So they had this idea that Jesus was coming back, and then I guarantee you this is what happened. They're just going about life. Everything's normal. Everything's fine. They're living this new way. They're going to church. They're interacting with everybody in the way that they're supposed to. And then somebody in their group dies. Somebody dies, and they're like, wait a second. They didn't make it to when Jesus is coming back. What happens? Do they miss out on Jesus coming back? Now, they don't get to spend eternity with Christ because they died before that happened? Now, this may seem like a silly question to us, but remember, we're reading somebody else's mail, and remember that your idea of an afterlife is informed by a Judeo-Christian worldview. They didn't have that at all. They came from a completely, this is a whole different ballgame for them. So they're wondering is if, if someone dies, did they miss the bus to the afterlife? Is that what happens? I don't know. What happens? Remember they had the whole river sticks, you know, if you remember some of your Greek mythology from back in the day. We're reading somebody else's mail, and so it's important that we understand the question that Paul is answering so that we don't get the wrong idea. But it's also important to understand just generally what he's saying. Now, uh, most of you know, and I know I repeat it, but if you didn't um, know this, my parents did mission work in Taiwan when I was a teenager. And uh, so I grew up in this culture as a teenager that had a completely different approach to death than we do now. So in Taiwan, the funerals they have were like days long. Because their idea is, is if so when someone dies, they don't know that they died, sixth sense style. They don't know that they died, and the family has to call that person to the, to the afterlife. Otherwise, after seven days, they become a ghost. And so you have to spend that seven days, like, like 
wailing and mourning and hollering for that person so that they can make it to the afterlife. It's on you. It matters. Where Uncle Bob ends up for eternity matters to the family reunion. You can imagine what impact that had on people. So one of the strange features of their grieving is that because it's important, you you communicate to the community around you how valuable this person was by how loud you mourn for them. And so what's sprung up around these is a culture of professional mourning. You go out or you search the white pages or you Google professional mourners and you hire someone to come in that is excellent at mourning. I have a picture of someone that's doing some professional mourning. You can see all the stone faces behind her, but this this young lady is weeping and wailing for Uncle Bob or whatever in this situation because they, they want everybody around them to know how special and valuable Uncle Bob was to them, and they want to make sure to call him back from the underworld. It's a, it's a very super unique outsourcing of the grieving process. And, and personally, personally, this is just pure judgment call, I wonder if it's informed a little bit by a lack of hope. If there's so much on the humans, that, that the people that remain behind to make sure that this person makes it into the afterlife, to make sure that they're honored well enough, that you have to hire someone to grieve on your behalf. Now, this is, this is uh, Taiwanese mythology, Taiwanese folklore, but most of us have at least a little bit of framework for what the Thessalonian people might have uh, known about the afterlife. So you've heard of Hades, right? We see that word, particularly in the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, it was taken from Greek mythology, and Hades was the underworld. And we probably have two points of reference for Hades in our Western culture. One of them is Homer's Odyssey. Um, and then the other one is Disney's Hercules. The bad guy was Hades. You guys might remember, you might remember that. And there's just this little bit of a framework for kind of what happens afterward. Um, and so here's the basics. I'm not no expert at all, so feel free to double check all this. Um, but I was reading a little bit out of a textbook about Greek uh, mythology about the afterlife. And this is the basic idea, is that the souls of the dead exist, but they're unsubstantial, and they float around the underworld with no sense of purpose. Sounds fun, right? Sounds like teenagers during the summer. <laughs> um, Homer, Homer wrote about death, and the, the guy that wrote the Odyssey, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, he said, the best possible existence is never to have been born at all because the greatness of life can never balance the price of death. But does that, does that sound a little hopeless? To you? Ah, it sounds hopeless. And so when Paul's writing, I do not want you to be an uninformed, brethren, because I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Can you imagine him speaking to a culture that was informed by people like Homer, who said that it's not worth, you shouldn't even be alive, because whatever life has to offer, it's not worth the cost of death. It's just, Hades is such an awful, terrible place for everybody. There wasn't like, I mean, there were categories, and, and I, it was basically just more or less okay if you were a really good person, but if you were a bad person, it just kept getting worse. There was nothing, nothing positive about it. No hope. Now, and I want, I want to note this. Paul, the apostle, as he's writing these people, he does not say, do not grieve. We have this weird idea in Christian culture that death should somehow not be grieved. Death is sad. Death is the enemy, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. It can be grieved. It should be grieved. Grieving is a normal, mentally healthy process. But he says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. 
And, and here's the difference, I think, is that hope does not erase our grief. You don't have to pretend like it does. But hope gives shape to our grief. That means that death doesn't have to be this awful, endless, black hole or whatever we imagine it might be. Uh, because we have, we have hope. We have hope. So this is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. This is, he, gives us, he gives us what we believe, our theology about death. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The gospel. Oh, that's good. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Oh, this is, this is really good. Because notice how Paul pens one to the other. Because you believe the gospel is true, therefore you believe this idea that we will all eventually be with Jesus forever. Because of the gospel. So one of the most direct applications of the gospel is what you believe about the afterlife. That's good. That's actually good. That's a good application for our ideas of what the gospel is. It transforms our relationship with death. But in verse 15, he says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Just imagine, for a second, if you can, you're rewinding your brain, you're in first century Thessalonica, you're dealing with the situation that they're dealing with, and you're suffering persecution for your faith in God, and you're working with the flawed idea that maybe if you die, you miss out on eternity with Jesus. Imagine how that would help you react to persecution, particularly persecution that could result in death. That would be a bad thing. Imagine if you died for your faith in Christ, but because you died for your faith in Christ, you missed out on eternity with Christ. That was kind of the confusion that they were working with. And we're like, no, that's not how it works at all. But that's what they were dealing with. And so you can see Paul answering this question. It's so valuable. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We, we don't even get to go first. That's not even the way that this works. This doesn't, it's not just us. And he uses a really uh, particular word in this description of what happens that, call, that is only used in these military ceremonies in Rome. So it calls to mind for people this very specific sort of military parade. So it would be kind of like, um, you know, when we use the phrase uh, pomp and circumstance. We, you never use that in regular, normal, everyday conversation. You only use that when you're talking about graduations or when you're talking about the song played at graduations, right? We don't walk around. We don't go to Chipotle and use the phrase pomp and circumstance in our conversation and ordering a burrito. It just doesn't ever come up. It's only in this very specific application, right? And that's the same with this word that we're going to read here. It's only used to describe these sort of military parades. So it'd be like something like uh, when our government, welcomes a foreign dignitary it's all very like laid out everything that happens you're supposed to greet that person in their language and you're supposed to you know you meet them on the south lawn of the white house and it's all everything down to the way the napkins are folded at the dinner table is all pre prescribed everything works out this way i got a picture of of one of these state dinners everything is just exactly the way it's supposed to be 
And so when we see Paul using this word, we can kind of understand to what he's referring in this, this broader picture. He's talking about something that had this, this specific sort of ceremony all around it. And, and what it is, there's tons of detailed history about these, but everybody would gather out, they would welcome in like a returning general or they'd welcome in the emperor or whoever it was, but everybody would gather outside the city walls and they would walk, you know, sometimes as far as a mile outside of the city walls and they would welcome in whoever that dignitary was and they would, you know, it'd be this big parade and they would walk them back into the city and they would escort them into the city center and then they would set them up in the temple and they would be treated by like, kind of like this, like this demigod for a day. Um, here is a description of this ceremony from the Encyclopedia of Ancient History. I know, super exciting right before you go to school. This is what it says. Horn sounded. See if some of this sounds familiar, by the way. Horn sounded. A single chariot led the way, pulled by four white horses. The chariot was plated with gold. Sitting atop the chariot, the triumphal general gazed at the admiring crowd. To them, he was a godlike figure who had brought victory and glory to the eternal city. That is a description of what it was to receive one of, these, uh, one of these dignitaries into the city. So with that in mind, I want you to hear verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself, and imagine what Paul is evoking with these words. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You can imagine he's like trying to evoke for these, these Greek people, the people with a Greek culture, this background of what it was like. They were familiar with these sorts of parades and what it was like to see Jesus coming back again. And what it would be like, and don't worry, Uncle Bob who died before Jesus showed back up, he's not missing out. It's great. He gets to participate too. God is going to resurrect everybody and we're all going to meet Jesus. This is awesome. This is wonderful. This is great. But then we get to the application. 1 Thessalonians chapter 17, second part. And so we will be with the Lord forever. 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 It's a long time, I understand. I thought high school was a long time. You know, you know how you've gotten all stressed out and worked up about, I don't know, something in your life. And a few days or a few weeks later, you kind of look back on that and you're like, why was I so worked up about that? Why, did, why, did that? why did that matter to me? Why was that such a big deal? And what it is is that time has this way of bringing perspective to our situations. And parents, we're doing this with kids all the time, right? I do this, I mean, I'm, my kids are starting to get bigger, but, I, you know, if, if my little guy pops a balloon, I mean, you've never seen such tears on a child, and I know you parents have been there too, like, when, when they lose something like that, it's the spilled milk thing, it should be updated to pop a balloon, you're, you're just like, they're just like devastated, as if life has come to an end, like, this is going to, this grief will mark the rest of their days, my balloon, and you're like, you know, hey, I, I just want you to know that there are literally zillions of balloons in the world. There are too many balloons. And it's, at some point, you're not going to like balloons anymore. Balloons are going to be kind of annoying. And they're getting in the way. And then the little kids are going to want to pop them. And they're going to cry. And you're going to be annoyed that they, somebody even created balloons. Like, just get rid of balloons. And you're just like, it, it's, it's no big deal. You need perspective. And time will grant you that perspective. Whatever it is. We do this with our, our little kids. We do this with our teenagers when they're getting all worked up about, I didn't get to go to that party and they didn't invite me. And you're like, those are terrible kids anyway. I'm secretly glad you didn't get invited to that party. 
party, that's awesome, but they're so sad and you're trying to comfort them and you're, you know that in five years they're not going to care about that. You're going to be like, you know, that kid that you didn't get invited to, their life is going to go nowhere and you're going to be, you know, president of the United States, so don't worry about them. Like time has this way of giving us perspective. Five years, 10 years, 15 years. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is like, don't think five years out. Don't think 10 years out. You're thinking too small. Think forever. Allow forever to inform your perspective of now. And if that's the case, it will bring new light to the things that we're dealing with. If we allow forever to influence the things that we are doing now, it brings perspective. In light of forever, what sorts of things should I let worry me? In light of forever. It's a much smaller list than we're allowing to let worry us right now, by the way. In light of forever, how should I spend my time? It's going to be different if we're thinking about the next few minutes versus the next few millennia. In light of forever, what things should really matter to me? What things should really motivate me and concern me in light of forever? So Paul encourages the Thessalonican people in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. When I think of the word encourage, I think of kind of that friendly pat on the back, you know. We all come to church, hey, how you doing? Handshake, all that kind of, well, uh, great, life is good, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think of that kind of like sort of generic brand encouragement. And this word is stronger than that. This word is like stir people up with this. And, and the deal is, is that we all are going to go through moments where we forget that we have forever, and we need the people around us to remind us of that fact. Encourage one another with these words that you have forever you who have given your lives to Christ, who have dedicated your lives to following Christ, who have followed Christ in baptism, you have forever. And we need to encourage one another with those words. And when somebody comes to us and like, I'm having a rough day, my car had a flat tire, my garage door opener wouldn't work, the espresso machine at Starbucks wasn't working, hey, calm down, man. You got forever. Don't let those things get you all riled up, all ruffled. Don't, don't, don't let that person bother you. Don't let that coworker bother you. You have forever. Keep forever in perspective. Encourage one another with these words. Because we need that. We forget it. It gets so wound up. What we believe about what is next impacts the way that we behave now. We live in a culture that wants to keep death at arm's length. Honestly, I, I know I mentioned this before, but we live in a culture that tries to make us appear as if we're younger than we are, as if that's better. It's a compliment, and this is so silly when you think about it. It's a compliment for you to go to somebody and say, you look younger than you actually are. Why is it a compliment? Because aging is bad. That's the, that's the assumption in that compliment. That's so silly. That's so, it's, it's dumb. I, I see a few senior citizens nodding. It is dumb. We devalue age as if age is somehow a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if you have forever. Age is a great thing. Age is only bad if you think this is all we have here and now. That's the only way it's bad. If this is all you have here and now, well then make yourself, get all the surgery you need to make yourself look like a 20-year-old. But if we have forever, then embrace what aging is and means and the influence that you can have on future generations. It's a great thing. It's so silly that we have this idea, but we don't even question that assumption. But we have this, the, the, the problem is, is that it's a luxury of our day and age to kind of keep death at, its, at arm's distance. It's not been a luxury throughout history. For most people throughout history, death was an ever-present reality. 
The age of mortality was younger. Uh, the, the infant mortality rate was younger. It was an ever-present reality. And you just, we can, I mean, we've got, we can treat cure, uh, terminal diseases now. Did you read in the newspaper a couple days ago? Like, they, there's a cure for Ebola. Like, they got the death rate down to like 6% under circumstance, certain circumstances. That's amazing. It means that we can just keep putting off facing the reality of the fact that we are going to exist forever and we don't have to think about that. We don't have to face the void. But it's, it's, just, it's just, our average lifespans are, are longer, but it's just, well, it's just an illusion is all it is. We all have to face this reality. <laughs> it's a fun thing to think about on a Sunday morning. Aren't you glad you woke up and you're like, yeah, to face the fact that I'm going to die. Yes, you are going to die. And Christianity informs the way we interact with death. It has to. If all we have is now, we're going to make different decisions. But if all we have is eternity, it's going to mean something else. I, uh, I always appreciate it when I read uh, that C.S. Lewis agrees with something I, I say because uh, he's a smart guy. But he had a, a quote in this regard that I wanted to share with you. Um, he says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves... Who set, foot on the, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with what comes next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. It's part of our discipleship, church. It's part of our discipleship to understand that death is a reality, but it is not the end of our reality. It's part of who we are. It's part of the way we live. It should inform the way we think and the way we go about our lives. The future has to give shape to the now. So I guess the question for us is that we need to wrestle with is what could be better about our life now if it were shaped by our belief or your belief in eternity? What would be better about today if we actually were understanding that this, this eternal perspective can shape the things that we do? I've, uh, I told you that I officiated a lot of funerals, a, a lot of funerals. I'm very experienced at funerals. I guess that should go on my resume. Good at funerals. And, and many of them were this tightrope between being comforting and, and trying to be honest and trying to actually say something that mattered. But there were a few funerals that were a genuine privilege to speak at, to officiate. There were some that were a privilege. And I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to help people understand that it was a joy to get up and talk about what an amazing human being this person was. And I think that the difference, the, ver the single difference, is whether or not that person had lived their life for now, or whether or not they had lived their life for the future. Because in that scenario, that person you were preaching or talking about or sharing uh, memories with, they, they had accepted something that we're all going to face, but they had accepted something, uh, with not, I don't want to say with joy, not like that we shouldn't be scared of death, but it was like it was the natural next step. It's where they were headed. They got into the college that they wanted to get into. They got the job that they wanted to get. They were headed in the direction they wanted to head, and it is a joy to officiate those funerals. It's a joy. So I guess bottom line is, make it easy for us ministers at your funeral. That's the takeaway here. Live in such a way that when we're preaching at your funeral, it is a joy because you are receiving the thing that you have been living for. 
That's what it's about. That's what it's all about. All right, First Thessalonians. It's so, such a good book, such a good book. Next week is going to be the last sermon in the series, and I encourage you to join us because I think that we're talking about, I shouldn't say I think, we are talking about the thing that I think is the single biggest factor in making sure our lives are shaped by Christ and that we're headed in the right direction. So next week is our final sermon in this more and more uh, series, and so I encourage you to come back. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, then we are, we are, uh, we are so grateful. Uh, we're so grateful for the perspective that